0: If you'd open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 1. This will be the last week that we discuss the prologue, the first 18 verses of this Gospel. As this Gospel proceeds, we'll see that most of the points that he addresses in the prologue, that John uh, addresses in the prologue, he's going to cover throughout the rest of the book. The point of the prologue is very simple. That Jesus, the Word, is God. He's always existed. He's the perfect word of God, the perfect communication of God. And he explains also how he came into the world. He he, he talks to us about how this, this infinite and eternal and unchangeable God actually became a man and came to us. He came in time and in space, as Francis Schaeffer would say. He fulfilled all prophecy Showing us the way to life and revealing the Father to us. That's the focus of uh, this morning's sermon is that he actually shows us the Father. He reveals the Father. Um, If you are a child in the service, there are children's notes in the back. If you need to get up and get a note pad, kids, if you don't have notes, go get them. We worked hard on these. So go get some notes. Um, They follow the sermon outline. Actually, some of you adults may want them too. Um, They follow the sermon outline exactly, so you'll be able to follow exactly the points that I'll be making. All right, so as we read this as well, uh, I know that the exact literary details aren't always that important, but this is kind of a chiastic structure in that John basically starts on one end speaking a truth, and then he goes to a pinnacle which is that we have life in Jesus Christ, and he comes back making the same points that he already made. So verse 1 and 2 and verse 18 really do match up just perfectly. Um, And you'll notice that if you just keep your eyes on verse 1 and the message there in verse 18 as we read that as well. Uh, But with that said, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word preserved by the Holy Spirit throughout all generations for you this day. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Please be seated. Praise God for his, his word. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to truth, Not only would we see and understand the truth, but our hearts would be comforted. Our hearts would be changed. That the Word of God, which is living and active, would penetrate our own souls. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus came to make the Father known. Uh, Many different references are used to describe this work of Jesus. One of them is actually applied to Christians, and that's we are ambassadors for God. Uh, Of course, Jesus was the chief ambassador from the Father to carry out the will of the Father, to make known the will of the Father. Uh, As little Christs, as Christians, we're to represent the Father in the world as well, but Jesus was the supreme ambassador from the Father. I know I've shared it with you before, but it just is so apropos for this morning. Um, I have a friend who actually is or was an ambassador um, for the United States to the country of Portugal. His name was Bob Sherman, a great guy. He served under uh, President Barack Obama. And I asked him, of course, I'm not leading any questions. I just said, tell me about the job of an ambassador. What are your duties? I want to understand from an earthly perspective what this means to you. Um, And in response to my question, this is what he wrote me. Keep this in mind as you think about Christ as the chief ambassador. The job of, of an ambassador is to advance the interests of his or her country in accordance with the principles and values set forth by that country's leader. It is important that the ambassador not only be true to those values and principles, but to be able to communicate them cogently and understandably. An important skill for carrying out the ambassadorial duties is to be able to listen to and empathize with the needs and challenges of those he or, see, he or she is seeking to engage with. Only by truly understanding that can the ambassador serve as an effective representative of a higher authority. So as I thought through those words that he he wrote back to me, I realized um, the job of an earthly ambassador has really always been the same. It's to represent your king, to represent your, your country, and the interests of that place in accordance with the principles and values of that country's leader. This is what Christ did better than any prophet before him. Um, he also, one of the things that... Um, Ambassador Sherman mentioned was that he had to listen to and empathize with the needs and challenges of those he sought to engage with, and only then he thought would he be able to serve effectively as a representative of that higher authority. And I just thought, oh my goodness, you you preached my sermon last week, um, and certainly Jesus came to the earth to empathize with us. He took on our flesh. Uh, In the incarnation, he empathizes with the needs and challenges of everyone whom he served and communicated truth about the principles and values of God better than any prophet or priest or king before him, better than Bob Sherman did for Barack Obama or any ambassador. This is what Jesus did when he came to the earth. He revealed the will of the Father to us, and not only the will of the Father, but the Father himself. He has made him known. That's the title, is He Has Made Him Known. So we're going to look at verses 15-18, through finish up the the sermons on the prologue. We'll look at John, uh, we'll look at Moses, and then we'll look at all the ways that Jesus is greater than John and greater than Moses. First, let's look at uh, verse 15. That John bore witness to Jesus. He bore witness about Jesus. Now, we'll spend much time in the following weeks talking about John the Baptist. Now, this is not the gospel writer, John. This is John the Baptist, uh, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, John. Um, We're going to talk about him next week. That's the rest of chapter one uh, and really his interaction with Jesus uh, throughout chapter one. So I'm not going to talk a lot about John right now, except to point out that his whole goal in life, was to bear witness about the Son. To bear witness. And this Greek word is martyre. Martyre. This means to bear witness or testify. We get the word martyr from them, from this Greek word, martyr. Uh, People who die bearing witness to the truth. Uh, John, in this sense, was actually a martyr in both ways that we look at martyre. He he bore witness about Jesus, but he also died for his faith. Um, Jesus said that John was the greatest among the Old Testament prophets, the greatest among men who ever lived. This is a mighty and powerful prophet for God. And yet his whole message, his whole purpose, was to bear witness to someone else, as every prophet before him was also doing. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, Gabriel told his father, told John's father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, that this would be his mission. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, Gabriel's talking to Zechariah in the holy place as Zechariah offered incense. And he said to Zechariah, For he, for John, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord. He was making ready the people for the arrival of the Lord. So John's a powerful prophet. He was viewed as a powerful prophet by all of the people. All of the people. Even before Jesus' death, he was still so highly regarded by the people that when the Pharisees tried to trap him, Jesus said, I will answer your question, but you must answer one question of me first. John's baptism, was it from man or God? And they could not say it was from man because every one of the people held John to be a mighty prophet. And indeed he was. But John even said he wasn't the focus. He wasn't the answer. He was not the word. He came to bear witness about the word, to give testimony about Jesus. And what was John's message? Well, he continues in verse 15. He cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This is what John cried out, that the eternal Son of God is greater than him. So this might be confusing to us knowing the whole story. Why is John saying this? Why is the gospel writers telling us what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Well, John was held by all people to be a great prophet. John came before Jesus in ministry. John was born before Jesus. Remember, Elizabeth was pregnant before Mary was pregnant. And Elizabeth had her child, John the Baptist, before Mary had her child, Jesus, So you might think that John ranked before Jesus by birth, by order of ministry. And John says, no, that is not the case. Jesus is more significant than me. But he also cries out in testimony to the divine nature of Jesus. Not just that he ranks before me, but he is divine and I am not. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So how was Jesus born after John, before him? This is very much like Jesus' response to the Jews in John 8.58 when they questioned how Jesus could possibly know Abraham personally. How could you know Abraham personally? He lived a thousand years ago. How can you say that you know Abraham? And Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego me, I am. John the Baptist's testimony is not just that Jesus is the next prophet, but that Jesus is God. He was before him. He was eternally a person. He testified that Jesus ranks before him. I think as a point of application, in much the same way we can see that this is also our duty as Christians, to bear witness before the world that Jesus is, is God. He is our only hope. There is no hope found anywhere else. Not just for salvation, but for life, for health, for peace. There is no other name given whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. And Jesus also makes this claim for himself that he must be the center of our lives. He says, I'm the light. He says, I'm the bread, I'm the water. In other words, I'm your sustenance. If I'm not, then I'm not yours at all. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow Jesus means death. Death to pride, death to, to self, to family, to friends, to wealth, to power, to promotion, to comfort. The only thing that we live for is Jesus. And as John the Baptist said, so we all true believers of Christ must also say, he must increase and I must decrease. It's not surprising, I think, that the word witness, to bear witness, this, this word testimony, martyre, is also the same word used in Revelation 12, describing the church, describing you and me. Revelation 12, 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved their lives, not even unto death. So as John did, so must we also. But John had a specific mission on the earth, and that was to bear witness, to prepare the way for the Savior, for Jesus Christ. He came to do that and that alone. And even though his life was difficult, it was a sacrifice that was a joy for him as a follower of Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 16 that in Christ, all fullness dwells and all fullness has been given to us. Grace upon grace, all fullness from his fullness. We all have received grace upon grace. We all meaning the church, but also the church of every believer who's ever existed in the church from Adam until the end of the world, all receive grace upon grace. From the fullness of Christ, all people from every age who served God received fullness from Christ. From his fullness, Abel offered to God an acceptable sacrifice. From his fullness, Noah built the ark. Abraham obeyed God. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. From the fullness of Christ, and from the fullness of Christ, we also live to Christ today by faith. In the Old Testament, maybe they didn't clearly understand the source of their strength, as we do. Yet the fact remains that from the fullness of Jesus, all saints are filled with all grace that they need for life today. In Him we live and move and have our being. In Him. And He is not stingy. He gives us everything that we need. From His fullness, we are also called to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's from His fullness that he, He enables us to live the Christian life. From His fullness, we all receive all that we need. It reminds me of when I was doing field training and I had a little canteen. We actually got two. They were just kind of gross. They smelled bad, but this was the only water we had. Um, and at various times, you were to stop and fill up your canteen. And this little tiny canteen, which is to sustain your life in the wilderness, um, you would fill it up at a, usually, well, we, this was in Washington State, so the rivers were big. They were real rivers, like Tennessee rivers, not like Texas rivers. So you would go to this, this river, this roaring river, and you wanted to get on the fastest part of the river where the water's the cleanest, and you would put your little tiny canteen into the, into the water, and you looked at the whole river just flowing past you, and yet all you needed was one canteen filled with water. And you had been down, and you'd put the canteen into the water, and of all that river, you got exactly what you needed, which is a canteen full. From the fullness of that river, everything I needed to survive that day was given to me. It was filled up. And it's much like that. That The fullness of Christ is like a, a mighty river. And He gives you what you need for each day. He fills up that canteen for you. And it's clean and good water. It's water that sustains. All fullness of God dwells in Him. Colossians 1, which was written before John 1, we all, most people believe, long before. In Colossians 1, Paul talks also about the fullness in Christ. Verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, talking of Jesus. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and he gives us of that fullness all that we need for life. We are all his debtor not only for salvation, but for life and breath and all of our being. And it's from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace. I love the hymn. It says, when I feel my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. He's he's given us grace upon grace. And that's the, the last part of that verse is, in His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. One thing that we actually as a family didn't realize is that until very recently in our lives is that we really enjoy the beach. We just enjoy going to the beach. And if you've been to the beach, you've probably done this. You, you put your chair close to the water and the waves just come kind of gently flowing over your feet. Again and again. And it's just soothing, isn't it? It's soothing as, if you're not a beach person, sorry, but it's very soothing just to see the waves coming back and forth, back and forth, never ceasing. And then to think, I often think that these waves have been doing this since the very beginning of time, since the beginning of creation. Waves do that. That's what they do. There's a permanence and a constancy. Dr. Gordon Ketty said, God's grace in this instance is to be like the waves of the sea rolling gently over us again and again. Grace upon grace. It's not just that he gives you grace and saves you. That's a mighty grace. Amen. But that grace never stops. It continues to roll over you. But I think something more is being said by John here than just that the grace continues and continues and continues based on where this verse comes in the context of the, of the next verse, and looking really closely, not to geek out, but to look at the Greek word that connects karis and "charitos" grace upon grace, it's anti, the Greek word anti, which, okay, it's a preposition. If you're in high school or in middle school or even in college, if you know what a preposition is, just shout it out. What's a preposition do? What's a prepositional phrase what does it do? Anybody? I know you know. Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. So a prepositional phrase describes the thing, the noun or the verb that comes before or after it. Right? It uses a little word, in, to, on. In Greek, they have the same kind of setup. So this, this preposition is anti. Um, grace upon grace. Anti actually, it can mean... On or upon. And that's a good translation. I love it. Other translations use for grace, for grace or grace after grace. But the word anti most commonly just means instead of. Think of anti in English, right? It's something as opposed to another thing. Grace instead of grace. Which is closely related to upon grace. But what is John saying? What is he saying? Well, he's referencing what comes after this in the text. And that's referencing Moses. Moses. It seems like he's saying that the fullness of grace has arrived in Jesus, and this grace is instead of the other grace. It's building on the previous grace. It's not replacing it. It's building upon it. And that's why the ESV really captures it well as well. It's it's a grace upon grace given by God's people to Moses. Yes, that was the first grace, the previous grace, but this is a grace upon grace. And that's verse 17. This old grace compared to this new grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave people grace in the law of God. This was a moral law, a civil law, a ceremonial law. The moral law being the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law being everything related to worship, temple worship, sacrifice. The civil law being related to how Israel was to govern themselves as a country, as a nation. But regardless, it was full of grace and truth, but it could not save. The moral law could not provide salvation or justify. It only pointed to our justifier. The ceremonial law could not provide forgiveness. The priest's sacrifices could not forgive sins. They only pointed to the great sacrifice. The civil law could not provide peace. They only pointed to the peacemaker and we see all the old testament especially the old testament law pointing forward to Jesus anticipating Jesus and in this way he fulfills the law it's a grace upon grace the work of Christ relates to the old testament in terms of fulfillment there was prophecy there was types there were the things that looked forward to Jesus in the old testament and he came to fulfill so when you look at the work of Christ related to the Old Testament, you need to think prophecy and fulfillment. Prophecy and fulfillment. The Old Testament saints saw the Redeemer dimly from a distance. But when Jesus came, he showed the fulfillment of all the types and promises, all the ceremonies, and he fulfilled it. It was a wonderful, special grace. And this is, this is the time that we now live in. We all understand much more clearly than Old Testament saints all that was said about Jesus. He told His own disciples in Luke 24 after the resurrection, Jesus said that everything written about Me, Him, in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's what He came to do. So the Old Testament Law of Moses came with grace, but it pointed to a much greater grace in Jesus Christ. He came in the fullness of grace and truth. The fullness of Jesus. So not only is the work of Jesus greater than Moses, which is really the point of Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, but the the relationship of Jesus with the Father is greater than Moses. And that references Exodus. Exodus 33 that we read already. Jesus was fully God. Moses was not. No one has ever seen God. John says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. He is making a direct reference to Moses in Exodus 33. There is some, some way in which we can say that he saw God, but not like Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was only ever seen partially and indirectly. God says that he spoke to Moses as a man face to face, but he's talking about the intimacy of their communications, not that Moses actually saw God in front of him face to face. Remember God told Moses, you cannot see my face. Well, no one will see my face and live. This is what John's referencing. And he told him, I'll pass by you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand. He's using what we call anthropomorphisms. This is using human language to help us understand kind of what's happening. He says, I'll take away my hand and then you'll see my back but my face shall not be seen. So God's a spirit. He doesn't have a literal hand and a face like Jesus does. But still, he's using this language so that we understand Moses did not see the fullness of God's glory. F.F. F. Bruce, I like this. He says that Moses actually saw the afterglow of God. And we see this similarly with, with everyone who sees in some respect, the glory of God. Isaiah saw the vision of the glory of God coming into the temple where it says the train of his robe filled the temple. I think more accurate. there were no trains at this time in a long robe of a king at that particular time. But what it probably is referencing is the hem of his garment, which is even more powerful. The hem of his garment filled the temple with glory. And this was enough for Isaiah to fall down crying, Woe is me, I'm ruined. So Moses, who was closer to God than any man ever before him, only saw the back of God. And he says, by comparison, Jesus, the only God, is at the Father's side. He's in the bosom of the Father, is the literal Greek. He's in the bosom of the Father. This is an intimate relationship. He's not looking at the back of the Father. He's the one with the Father. He is God. And look at his language too. He says... The only God. He's talking about Jesus. The only God who is at the Father's side. So you can hear this this returning to the theme of verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's returned to this theme now in verse 18. This man Jesus, the Word, was very God of very God. Kids, if you're taking notes on your, on your note sheets, I want you to listen to me. Jesus was God. The man Jesus was God. And this begs us just quickly to talk about the nature of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Scripture gives us all that we need to understand. It doesn't say everything. It doesn't even say a fraction of what it could, but it tells us what we need. And that is that these three are the same in substance. They're equal in power and glory. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Ryan McGraw writes, he writes a lot about the Trinity. He's at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. They're a professor of systematics. He's excellent. He writes, this means that the Son is all that the Father is, except the Father. Likewise, the Spirit is all that God is, with the exception of the Father and the Son. These three persons mutually indwell one another, and they're different in their procession. He means the, how they proceed, how they how they how they go out. The Son proceeds from the Father. The Father proceeds from no one. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So these don't imply authority and submission, with the exception of when Christ came to Earth incarnate, He submitted to the Father as a slave to a master. He submitted to the Father on earth. But in His divine nature, He's always fully God. There's one sovereign power, one sovereign will, one sovereign authority in God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Equal in substance and power and glory. So the processions of the Trinity show an eternal order, but the missions of the Trinity reveal that order to us. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's revealing that order to us The Father elects, but the Son comes to us and redeems. The Father ordains, but the Son executes. The Father originates, but the Son accomplishes. And then the Spirit applies that work and completes it. So whatever one person of the Trinity does in one sense, they all are active and present. So how does this relate to the text? The Son is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus is the one God from the bosom of the Father. He's saying that the Father eternally and infinitely communicates all divinity to the Son, to Jesus. The man who came and tabernacled among us, Jesus was God. So let's close with just this verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. He has made Him known. I saw a little clip uh, on the internet not long ago. It was about, I think it was Peyton Manning who the coaches basically called new Peyton Manning and called him and said, we want our team. I think it was a division two football team. And the coaches wanted the team to understand the level of play that they were not doing. They wanted them to understand the level of play of professional. Um, so they had Peyton Manning dressed up like long hair and a fake nose. And he goes to practice. It's like day one of, Whatever his first practice, he's a walk-on at this Division II college, and again the coaches are just wanting him to excel, which he did, to show the team what that level looks like, to make it known. And he's throwing the like he's he's Peyton Manning, like he's good. So he's just rifling balls to these receivers, and they're just dropping him because he's throwing so hard or he's so accurate. And he obviously knows exactly what he's doing. He he stays in the pocket. He trusts his linemen, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, the the starting quarterback before that was a little disheartened. He was seeing something that he had not known before. But he's also excited. And they talked to him afterwards, and he was like, I was actually excited. This guy was good. Our team's going to be better. So that made me think about Jesus like all the prophets before Jesus were trying to make the Father known. And then when they finally saw Him, Jesus said, when Abraham saw me, he rejoiced at my day. Jesus came to make the Father known. The fullness of the Father. To narrate or exegete the Father. To explain the Father. No one has ever seen Him. Except Jesus, and He has made Him known to us. J.C. Rowell says, After reading this passage, can we ever give too much honor to Christ? Can, it, can we ever think too highly of Him? No man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to God the Son. Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul." One of our highest duties and privileges, according to John Owen, is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we think about the sacrifice of Christ, His broken body, His shed blood for us in obedience to the Father. We consider His person and His work as we read the Gospels. We fervently pray that God would open our hearts to understand Him. And we ask ourselves questions like, Why do I love Jesus? Why do I honor Christ? Why do I desire to pursue Him in the Word and in prayer? Why do I pursue Him in in the fellowship and the encouragement of the saints and the preaching of His Word and partaking of the sacraments? Why? Why do I do these things? Why do I long to see Him? And in answering these questions through the Scriptures, you begin to see a little more of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you don't desire these things, If you don't have a desire to know more of Christ, then you just don't know him. And you should. You should turn your heart to him now.